making those early connections, even though I was started off as a home business, getting out in the community and showing face, you have to show face. You have to do the hard work. You can't pay for somebody else to go out there and run a street fair or have an open house for you or a free sample day. It has to be you. You are intrinsically tied to the community that your business is in. Welcome to the Business Muscle Podcast, where we empower entrepreneurs to transform their businesses into unstoppable empires. I'm Elise, CPA turned serial entrepreneur. And I'm Arielle, a seasoned physical therapist and business owner. We're two female entrepreneurs with a passion for helping small business owners like you achieve massive success. With our combined expertise, we've scaled to an impressive seven businesses in less than seven years. And guess what? Each of them was profitable right from the start. But we didn't stop there. We're here to share our secrets, strategies, and insider tips help you turn your business into a thriving reality. And hey, we're not just all about business. As a physical therapist and fitness instructor, we'll also sprinkle in some fitness and wellness tips along the way. Join us on the Business Muscle Podcast every Monday as we guide you step-by-step towards financial freedom and building the business of your dreams. It's time to level up your business. Get ready to flex your business muscle. Welcome back to another episode of the Business Muscle Podcast. Today, we welcome Laura Marie Small to the podcast. Laura Marie is founder of Kid Casso Art Studio. Kid Casco is dedicated to providing kids from age 1 to 18 a safe space to play, create, explore, and discover. Laura Marie was diagnosed with a language-based learning disability at the age of eight and told she would never go to college, but she has continued to prove herself over and over again and has built Kid Casso to three successful brick-and-mortar locations. Laura Marie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me today. So before we dive in, why don't you tell us what Kid Casso is? Kid Casso, I feel like it's a lot of things. I think it's your home away from home. It's a place where you can feel safe. It's a place where you can be silly and goofy, create, have fun, make friends, be by yourself if you want. Um, I really look at Kid Casso as an extension of my home and my teacher's homes, and we hope that that's how the kids that come to us feel too. That's amazing. It's such a beautiful space, and it's so great that kids can escape into your spot. So before we get into more of the background of Kid Casso, tell us about growing up. So when you were eight years old, you were diagnosed with a language-based learning disability. Tell us what that was like for you. So I knew early on it, you know, as a young kid that school didn't feel like I totally fit in. I definitely was able socially um, and maybe more emotionally to kind of play by the rules and uh, be in a classroom and know how to use my voice to kind of get what I wanted or to distract my teachers from actually teaching me. Uh, I think I probably was very good at that. Once uh, I was diagnosed with a language-based learning disability, I remember taking pretty big control of my own learning at such a young age. And I think that really came from my upbringing and who my parents are. I don't know at the time many kids that were sitting in their own IEP meetings at age 9 or 10, but I was like, I will be at my IEP meeting because it's my meeting. You're talking about me. I will be there. Um, And my parents supported that. And as an adult now, I feel like that experience really pushed me to having that voice and that independence. So as much as I see myself as a kid who struggled and having a disability, I also think it was my greatest uh, strength in this world because it helped to give me my voice. And I was lucky where I found that voice at eight, nine years old. Yeah, that's great. I mean, something that could have been a setback for you, you just used it to continue to motivate yourself. So when you were in eighth grade, you were told you wouldn't ever go to college, but you ended up proving everyone wrong, right? You went to Fairfield University. So yeah. what was your motivation? How did you just continue to, to keep pushing yourself even though you had this disability? I think the word no, I think sometimes our society and as adults, we will tend to come from a place of no before we come from a yes. And hearing a no to me is just a way to push open a door and to actually get what you want. Um, So probably not the easiest child to parent because the word no really doesn't mean anything to me. Um, But I think it kind of gave me that fire and that 
that energy to push down those barriers and to say, no, actually, I can do this and I will. So I'm very grateful uh, looking back, even though, you know, no kid wants to be told that. Um, looking back at the teacher who specifically said it to me, it probably was a pretty big gift that she gave me that she didn't even realize uh, when she said that to me. Definitely. I feel like a lot of common traits for entrepreneurs are their disruptors. They don't like taking no as an answer. And clearly from you from an early age, it was like in your blood. This is just who you are. It was in your DNA. When did art start to become a bigger part of your life? Was it early or was it not until college time? Definitely early. Um, I grew up in a pretty creative household. I'm the oldest of five and my mom um, is and was and still is a... um, actress and singer and dancer and performer. So while most kids were at soccer practice, I was typically sitting in a theater on top of a piano or running up and down aisles, playing in costume lofts and prop rooms with my siblings and making things and um, being creative. That's just how we were raised by our mom, who was a stay-at-home mom, but theater was so important to her. And wherever theater was, her kids were right next to her. Um, so I like to make the jokes that I definitely have a theater mom and she's still very much a theater mom. Uh, but yeah, I think that creative experience and living in a creative home was a way, a natural way for me to learn. And I think if I had had some more of those experiences in my school setting of being more creative and more open-ending – Maybe I wouldn't have struggled as much in school, but when I was at school, finding theater and finding art uh, definitely helped to kind of mold me and it gave me the strength to go to school and to be part of school and be part of a community, which benefited me for sure. Definitely. So you ended up going to get your master's Mm -hmm. in art. And then what was the end goal from there? Were you like, I'm going to become a teacher or was business always the plan? Yeah. So when I was a kid and high school and beginning of college, everybody told me I was going to be a teacher. I wanted nothing to do with being a teacher. I definitely ran away from it. Um, My senior year at Fairfield, I actually had pretty much completed all my credits and I was doing a couple of different internships in New York City and in the Connecticut area. And I had time in my schedule and I was like, I'm going to take an education class. And the headmaster, the dean of the education department at Fairfield was like, who are you? You're now, you're a senior and now you want to take this education class? And I was like, yeah, I'll just take it. It's just for fun. And it was uh, the first class in probably my whole entire life that I had an A plus in. And I was like, oh crap, shoot, it's coming for me. I'm supposed to be a teacher. I'm good at this. But I still ignored it. And I graduated Fairfield. I moved to Boston. I got a job with Tiffany and Company and did a lot of uh, visual merchandising with them and was like, I'm going to live this fabulous fashion life in Boston. And then September 11th happened and I got laid off and it was right around the holidays and I was home in upstate New York. And my dad said to me, you have choices. And so the first choice you're going to make is you're going to go back to Boston. Here's $300 to pay your rent, which that's ridiculous that my rent was that cheap. But uh, that's a long time ago. (laughs) And I went back to Boston with my $300. And my dad said, figure it out. And so I got a nanny job. And within two weeks of nannying, I realized I'm supposed to be a teacher And I remember calling my dad, who definitely is probably one of my biggest support systems. And I said, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to grad school and be a teacher. And then I felt like I had this turning point where it was like, am I going to be a visual art teacher or am I going to be a theater teacher? That's what my degree is in. It's in visual and performing arts, but which place do I want to teach? And I ultimately decided that I wanted a paintbrush in my hand at the end of the day And so I went to grad school and worked my butt off and had so much fun doing it. And it actually felt for the first time that it was that I was owning my future and owning my career. And I loved grad school. It was definitely two years of my life that were a highlight for sure because I was actually doing something I was good at um, and it was motivating. 
Yeah, great. So you finished grad school, you started working as an art teacher? Yep, started in the public schools. Yep. And how long were you an art teacher before the idea for Kid Caso started to pop up? So my after my first year of teaching, summertime came and I had a few of my students from school whose parents asked me if I would teach some private lessons during the summer. So I literally set up our dining room like a little art studio. And when I think back to that, there were so many beginning moments of that dining room that you see today when you walk into Kid Caso. Like I took all the china out of the china cabinet and I put glass jars with paintbrushes and pom-poms. And I still do that today. So it's kind of funny when I look back at those beginning steps. So that's really where Kid Caso was born. That was around, I'd say, 2005, 2006. Um, And the business really started to grow from that concept. I realized there was a place for creating art outside of the school. And I realized when I started to research, there weren't many fine arts or creative process-based art studios in the Boston area. And really, the MFA was the only place. And sometimes the MFA, it's awesome. It's wonderful there. But It doesn't feel as tangible, especially if you are not an artist and engaged in art. The MFA can feel like a scary place. It can be really overwhelming to people. I think art can feel scary to people. So I really took that idea, and I feel like that's really going back to that idea of Kid Caso being a family and being a home. I wanted people to, no matter where they came in with art, that they felt comfortable in this space. When did you come up with the name Kid Caso? Because I'm obsessed. I love good branding and I feel like you knocked it out of the park. It's like so, it's just perfect. So how did you come up with that? Okay, this is a good story because it's about Oprah. Uh, so I was nannying and uh, so I was teaching in public school. I was still working at Tiffany and company every once in a while just to make some extra cash and I was nannying. So I basically like worked seven days a week with three jobs, which I feel like most business owners do. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, you know, people always say, oh, what did I do before kids? I was working three jobs before I had children. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was nannying and the little boy was taking a nap and I had Oprah on and I can picture myself like sitting on their couch, probably drinking a cup of tea, probably with like a sketchbook, writing ideas down for a business. And the owner of Spanx was on this particular episode of Oprah. And Oprah was talking about women businesses and something about the episode just – I was like, I got to tune in. I can't just like have this on in the background. This is important. I need to watch this episode. And the owner of Spanx was talking about her logo and her name and the hard cuss sound that Spanx makes. And she started talking about companies like Kmart or Kit Kat. And I was like, okay, that cuss sound, that's a hard sound in a name. I need to remember that. Um, So really, that's where Kid Caso came from. A lot of my friends did not like it. They thought it was a stupid name. I'm obsessed with it. I know. I love it. I think it's so unique. A lot of people wanted me to use my name. Right. Yeah. You can tell what the business is from the name. Right. Um, so yeah, I wanted that hard cuss sound and I was like, okay, it's got to have a K in there somewhere. And I was like, okay, I know I want to teach kids. I don't want to teach adults, even though I'm asked multiple times a month to teach adult classes. I am not going to teach adult classes. Sorry. Um, we're Kid Caso. That's the name. And I didn't want it to connect to Laura Marie. I didn't want it to be like Laura's little studio. I didn't, you know, I was like, no, that's not my hook. I Where's Laura's little studio going to go? Um, not that I envisioned having three other locations, but I felt like listening to these different women business owners on that episode of Oprah, I knew that I needed to keep the door open for it to evolve to something else. It couldn't just have one static place. It needed to be able to open up if I wanted it to. That's so smart because you were thinking, even maybe at the time you didn't realize it, but if I go to scale this, you don't want to have to be in every place all the time where the business just revolves around just you. Like Laura Marie always has to be there, which Kid Castle, I love it. So I'm so happy you you didn't get (laughs) it. wasn't Laura's little studio. No, no, wouldn't have worked. How long did it take from sitting there watching Oprah? You have that aha Mm -hmm. moment. It's going to be Kid Castle. 
to actually opening your first studio in Wakefield or location? Pretty quickly. I want to say that was probably, that episode was probably in the winter, like February, March, maybe. By that summer, I was rebuilding the little garage in our backyard in Wakefield. We lived on Greenwood Street. and We had a 250 square foot shed. And my brother, one of my brothers came for the summer and we put him to work and a bunch of my husband's friends came over and they insulated it. They put ceiling on and we got an electrician to come out. And all of a sudden I had this little studio space with the red paintbrush that I hand drew on a little tiny plaque and lime green walls that I painted myself. Then I set up my little jars and I had my exactly my like 12 pencils, my 12 pairs of scissors. Um, and I started teaching classes. And that was that summer, I guess it was probably like end of August of 2007 is when my first classes started to happen. Um, and then by Christmas time of 2007, we were at about 50 kids in and out of my house every week on Greenwood Street, which is not an easy street to be on. It's a little bit of a pass-through and a busier street. And I think my husband was getting a little tired of coming home at the end of the day and people would be like lounging on my couch um, and like sitting by a fire. And I would be like outside in the little shed teaching a class and my husband would would be like, okay, this is a little weird. Mm -hmm. um, but I think back to that too and thinking those those first 50 people to be able to trust not only me, here I am a certified Corey Sorry check teacher, fingerprinted, all that. You know that I'm a safe person for your children to be around. I'm inviting you into my home and my husband's there. And that I think when I look at those first 50 families – that is so the roots of Kid Caso. I mean, these people were literally sitting in my living room. They were using my bathroom off of my kitchen. Like that, it was like, come on in. Um, it's funny to think about. It's so crazy, but that's, you just gotta like get started. And I feel like a lot of times the hardest part for people is just to start. Like, where do I even start? Definitely. And you just made it happen at your house. You're like, this is what we have. We're going to yeah. We're going to roll with it. How did you advertise at the beginning? Was it all word of mouth? Were you putting out? Definitely grassroots, uh, word of mouth. I did early on join the chamber and I started to get really involved in the Wakefield community. Um, and I really tried to look for resources for home businesses. But in 2007, nobody had home businesses. So that didn't really exist. People weren't working at home like they are now. So there was nothing out there. I kind of felt like I was a little bit on a lone island as a small business. Um, and I had to find my own way in those first six months. And then getting involved in the community and getting out there, I think, really helped me get to the next place of finding the brick and mortar on Albion Street. And I felt like I had begun to develop relationships with people in the community and people started to know who I was. And I put myself everywhere that I could possibly possibly be. I mean, I think our first art show was at a Starbucks on Route 1 in Saugus, which there used to be a Starbucks by that Skechers and Artists mm -hmm. and Craftsmen, my favorite art store. Um, we did an art show there and I like called the newspaper and I was like, you have to come to this art show. It's going to be so much fun. And I like got Starbucks to give me like tons of free stuff for all the kids who came. I mean, I just did anything I could. I was there. And I was at the Burlington Mall doing art classes. I mean, that's so random. But that's where I was. That's so huge. And that's just what you have to do in the beginning. It's like just anyone who will listen, tell them your mission, right? Yeah. And it seems like your mission was very clear. So what was the timeline between the shed and being at your house to opening the first brick and mortar? So that was pretty quick. So by 2008 is when I started to find, started to look at places to rent. Um, definitely interesting. I feel like, you know, we before we started today, we were talking about landlords mm -hmm. um, and building owners. There's definitely a little bit of an old school mentality with um, properties out there that are on the market. I have amazing landlords in Wakefield, um, but Mr. Rock Amato, who's no longer alive, um, he was 
so adamant of only speaking to my husband first when I came to look at the space. He wouldn't even look at me. I mean, it was so nice and polite to me. He's like a grandfather. But he was like, no, I'll talk to your husband. And finally, my husband's like, Mr. Rocamato, this has nothing to do with me. I'm just standing here like helping my wife, like smiling and being like, sure, you can do this. Um, And so that was like really interesting too, going through the process of finding a space, leasing a space, working with a landlord, coming to agreements. But I also didn't really fold on what I wanted. I knew exactly what I wanted in this space. And I knew what I could afford and I knew what I couldn't afford. I knew I couldn't afford to put in new floors right away. So I made do with the mauve colored carpet that was on the floor. Um, And I was adamant about what I wanted in a space. And once again, not taking no for an answer. I was like, this is the money I'm going to pay you and I'm not going to pay you any more than this. And I got my way. That's awesome. We did the same thing at Fix. We had terrible floors the first year (laughs) and then we saved up and eventually now the floors look great. But so was everything, uh, did you fund everything through the business and do everything yourself or did you have any extra support? We did everything ourselves. Um, I am very proud in the fact, you know, obviously nothing against this, but I was so, as is my husband, I was so determined to do this without any loans or debt. I didn't want to have anything that was going to like take over what we as a couple were trying to do with our own life. We were looking at our marriage and the family that we wanted to grow. We didn't want Kid Casso to impact that negatively. So basically every dollar I made, I just kept putting it back into the business. And I was still teaching in public school. I was still nannying and I was still working at Tiffany's. So I literally was working as much as I could to get those kids in the door. Um, And I had like a little clipboard where I would write their names down and I would like only accept check because I didn't have credit card processing. Mm -hmm. I, you know, like I, all these things I didn't have. I had a tax ID number. That was about it. I had a website um, that a friend made for me. I had my logo, um, but everything was handmade. I mean, my sign in Wakefield, handmade. Couldn't afford to go to a sign company to make it. So I was like, my husband will build it and I'll paint it. And that's what we did. I had folding tables, like full, which I still have today and still use for events. But like I would literally, it was like folding tables and Ikea stools. And I just made it look as nice as I could. You're speaking our language because a lot of people <laughs> open businesses and they dump so much money into it. And like, when are you going to get this back? For us, yeah. our whole model is like, what can we do? So we put all our sweat equity into it. What can we do to save money and to get cash positive cash flow mm-hmm. in the first month? Then you can invest it back in and then you can make things nicer. But when people go into crazy debt and they want all the bells and whistles at yeah. the beginning, I'm always like, oh God, I hope this works out for you, but, but you never know. Yeah. Um, so when you sign that lease, now it's game time, right? And went from Maybe you could call it a hobby. I know you were working, yeah. but more yeah. of like a hobby. It's in your house and it's not like you could stop it at any time you wanted. Yeah. Now you signed a lease. How did you feel once that decision was made? So then it definitely was like, okay, this is go time. And how much longer am I going to spend teaching in public school? And when is it time to say goodbye to the, that career and to jump in? Um, definitely not having kids at the time was huge for me because I really could focus 100% on Kid Casso and making money. Um, So once I made the decision to go headfirst into Kid Casso, I did it. I mean, I literally said to my principal, I mean, I made the decision on, you know, let's say a Thursday night, okay, I'm going to tell my principal I'm not coming back next year. I went in Friday, gave my notice, and I was like, nope, I'm committed to it. This is what I'm doing. And thinking, if it fails, what's going to happen? Like, so I go back to public school. I go back to do something else. Um, And that is totally coming from the place I was as a child of that idea of like falling off the horse. What was I going to do? You got to get back up again. So that fear factor didn't exist for me. I was was like, of course, I'm going to pay the rent this month. I know I have enough money to pay the rent this month with or without being a public school teacher. I know I still have enough money. I've got enough saved up to do this. So I just did it. What did your day-to-day look like when you first opened that brick and mortar? Uh, Probably pretty similar today, except unlike today where I have uh, a pretty great team behind me and support system, 
it would just be me like getting my little cup of tea and going to unlock my door on Albion Street and walking in and making sure there were fresh flowers on the table, turning all the lights on, putting music on. I think having the experience in retail, especially a higher-end retail, something that Tiffany's taught me was that first impression is everything. That blue box is the blue box for a very specific reason. And that white ribbon, there's only one way to tie a Tiffany bow. Um, Nobody else has the Tiffany bow. And I felt like even though Kid Casa was a handmade business right now, it has to have the same standard that Tiffany's has. And that has to be come from me the minute I walk in the store. There can't be piles of crap on a desk. There can't I can't be sitting there eating my lunch. You know, even though nobody's coming in the studio, I have to be ready for somebody to walk in. And that's how I I started. I mean, I remember people probably thinking I was like some weirdo who sat there like fully dressed every day, like ready to go in my chair. Um, but yeah, I would go in, get my lights on, set up, and then I would wait for my kids and I'd have a few kids coming in. In the beginning, I didn't do baby or toddler classes. I really was only after school classes. So the mornings is when I would either be nannying or at Tiffany's or when I was still doing some stuff within the public school, I scheduled those for the morning hours. So the afternoon and evening is really when I was seeing the bulk of the kids that were coming in. And it just started to grow. There was nothing out there. So I really dominated the market um, in this area with an after-school art program for kids. And they came and they didn't leave. And the kids who one of our students, Jacob, he'll probably kill me if he listens to this because I always talk about poor Jacob. Jacob was six years old when he started at Kid Casso. He started in my backyard and now he's a graduate from college. And I called him up this summer and was like, what are you doing? Graduated. You want to work with me a little bit? And now he's one of our teachers. If that isn't longevity within clients, I mean, that's client retention right there. That's amazing. (laughs) We're just going to pause this episode real quick so that I can tell you guys about our free 30-minute webinar on January 25th at 7.30 p.m. called Why You Should Be a Cash-Based PT. So I was a physical therapist in the insurance world for years before I ever opened my own business. It was super frustrating because I had to see multiple patients at the same time. I was so limited in what skills I could use because of the restrictions around insurance, and I was very unpaid. When I finally took the lead to open my own business, everything changed. I could finally see one patient at a time. My patients all started getting better so much faster because I was using all the skills that I had in my toolbox. We were cash flow positive in the first month and even hit six figures at four months in. So if you're nervous about becoming a cash-based PT, this webinar is for you. We cover all the reasons why you can and should be a cash-based PT and why it might not be as hard as you think to get started. If you can't make it on January 25th, you can catch the replay anytime. So if you are a PT or you know a PT who's interested in opening their own business, definitely let them know about this webinar. We're going to link in the show notes how to register. We hope to see you guys there. Let's get back to the episode. So I love this because you started, like you had your process in your in your mind, even though it was just you in the beginning, you knew exactly what you wanted it to look like when someone walked through the door, what that whole client process was going to look like. When did you start bringing on other team members? So once I decided that my husband and I were ready to become parents or we wanted to venture into the world of trying to have children. Um, You know, both my husband and I were pretty strategically planned. We're definitely planners. I'm somebody who looks 10 years down the road, even though I'm only 45. If you ask me how old I am, I'm already 50 in my mind. Um, I just kind of live in that future. So I knew that I needed somebody. My sister, Emily, had just graduated undergrad with a degree in elementary school ed with um, a focus on literature and art within the classroom. And she graduated. And I said, hey, listen, I'm totally going to be pregnant this summer. So you're going to come and you're going to spend the summer with me and work because I'm going to be pregnant and I'm going to be doing pregnancy yoga and eating so healthy and it's going to be glorious. You guys are both laughing because you know where my story ends. Um, So Emily came on and started teaching with me. And then all of a sudden, September came and I wasn't pregnant. 
And Emily was still there. And I said, what are you going to do? Are you going to go apply for a teaching job? Like, are you going to be a teacher in a school? That's what you graduated to do. And she was like, I don't want to leave. I want to stay here. And I was like, okay, cool. And I was like, and I'm still going to try to have a baby. But and when that happens, you're still going to be here. You're going to take over for me. She's like, yeah, totally. Um, And then Emily never left. And now it's been 15 years working with my sister, 14, 15 years, which is crazy and awesome. Um, I know. Again, talk about retention too. Like people come to you and they don't want to leave. That's a testament to you. That's that's a hard thing to do. People's lives change. It could not even be just just your life changes and you Mm -hmm. just have to, but you are just retaining clients, retaining employees, everything. It's amazing. Yeah. Definitely a lot of heart and soul in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what was it like working with your sister? There must've been some challenges around that. Definitely challenges. However, I think Emily and I are nine years apart. Um, so that I think was helpful. I think Emily always saw me. Obviously, I'm the big sister. Um, she probably always kind of followed my lead in some sense. So in the beginnings of Kid Caso, she was like, yeah, I'll just do what my sister is asking me to do. Let's do this. Um, we definitely have had our rough moments and moments of challenges. Um, and then we've had moments that have brought us so close together um, and really connected us business-wise. I would say COVID was something that was really a turning point for our business relationship. I think bef- right before COVID, I would say Emily was feeling a little like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I don't know what my role is here at Kid Caso. I don't know where I'm going with my life. What do I want to do? And then COVID happened and all of a sudden it was like, wait a minute, we need each other in this. This is this is the business that we've been doing. Um, and it really evolved our relationship on a business level and then definitely on a personal level. I mean, Emily's my best friend and my right hand at the studio and um, she's grounded me a lot. I'm definitely more in the clouds than she is. Um, she's graduated from being a Kid Caso part-time teacher to being a full-time teacher to now the beginnings of wearing a general manager role, which is really awesome. It's taken um, her to a new place in her career, and it's given me a chance to step away from some of the things with the business to focus on creating in new ways for the company too. And you hinted at this a couple minutes ago. And this is something that hits home very, very tough. Everybody knows about my IVF journey and it's still going on and it's not, it's just the hamster wheel of hell. I like to say it's, it's not fun, but you kind of hinted that you thought you were just going to get pregnant. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people do, you, you, you spend your whole beginning of your life trying not to get pregnant, right? <laughs> so Thinking true. that it's going to be so easy. Yeah. And you look on Instagram and everything and it looks so easy. Mm-hmm. So you're running this business and it doesn't come easy. So what is that like running a business and then also going through this very deep, emotional, devastating journey of not being able to get pregnant? So I definitely have very vivid memories in the, you know, these early days of Kid Caso. Here we are at, let's say it's like 2010 and like social media is existing, but it's not like it is today. It's not like, you know, people are on their stories and people are podcasting and vlogging and all this. Um, And I felt like there was definitely some honesty I needed to share with our clients at the time to tell them I was going through something. I'm for sure a heart of my sleeve person. You know when I'm happy. You know when I'm pissed off. um, And you know when I'm sad. And I couldn't hide that from my families. But I also at the same time didn't want to be consumed by the sadness I was feeling. Um, And so there were definitely really dark days at Kid Caso that people had no idea. I would teach a baby class and it would be filled with pregnant bellies and bucket seats and they would leave and I'd close the door and I'd just sob. Um, And that sucks. Like I, you know, I didn't want to be in that place. But there were people within the business, different families that I started to open up to about our struggle and our journey with fertility and infertility and the times that I was taking fertility meds. And, you know, quite a few of our parents are nurses. So I had many parents being like, do you need me to come over and give you your shots? 
I had families say, hey, I just went through my round of IVF and I'm pregnant. Do you want my extra medicine? Like, I shouldn't give this to you, but do you want my medicine? And I did start to hear this opening up of women sharing the ins and outs of infertility and miscarriages and being more honest and more transparent. I think it's something that we are still really um, – we women have a challenge 100% in sharing those personal moments and those struggles, um, but it's definitely getting easier. And I think that Kid Caso families that knew me at that time um, – it just made them closer to me. It's it was started to become friendships, which in turn in turn started to strengthen the business on a different level for sure. I just got chills hearing you talk about that. Thank you for sharing that. And again, it just goes back to you wanted Kid Caso to be a family, and again, hearing no, and you just allowed it to allow you to become closer with your clients at Kid Caso and continue mm-hmm. to build your brand and build your community. So what a beautiful positive thing that yeah, you built from there. You. Thank you. So you were going through all this and then when, even when you're going through all these troubles, you still were like, I think we should open a second one. How <laughs> yeah. did that, how did that work out? So once we decided that we weren't going to go down the medical side of um, trying to conceive and we started to look at adoption and um, you know, of course, like me, my husband would never have done this, but me, I'm like, okay, we did all this adoption paperwork. Like, let's open another studio. I'm going to be bored waiting for this baby. Like, what am I going to do with myself? It's going to take a year, right? Um, so it was perfect because I said to my sister, Emily, you're going to run Kid Caso Arlington. I'm going to run Wakefield. And in a year, a baby will be here. And then we'll cross that bridge when we get there. So we're in Arlington. We find the space. We get set up. I had some business connections in the Arlington area um, prior to opening Kid Caso in Arlington. So it was nice that I felt like I had a little bit of a business community there that I trusted and felt supported by Arlington. And within the first weekend of getting the keys and moving in and getting the first official Kid Caso sign that I paid for from a sign guy and I didn't make myself hung up. And the phone rang and it was our adoption agency and they said, you have a baby. And I was like, what? A baby? We just gave you our papers four weeks ago and now we have a baby? And they said, yep. And you're leaving to go to Indiana tomorrow. So make sure you have everything. And I remember being like, okay, well, we're going to go get this baby, but Kid Caso is my baby too. And our social worker was like, well, now your baby's here, so you need to get into gear here and make this happen. So my sister Emily really seamlessly took Arlington and literally opened it. Like she had no experience of having a grand opening or running two studios at the exact same time that I was like, bye, see ya, I'm going to go have a baby. And then people that knew that we were adopting, they would be like, where's Laura? Where'd she go? And Emily was like sworn to secrecy. She couldn't say anything because God forbid we came home and didn't have a baby and it falls through. So Emily would just like kind of wink. But then I would have parents like dropping things off at our house, like little blankets. And it like, so the word was getting out that the small's got a baby. Did they get a baby? Where's the baby? Is it coming? Um, And yeah. And then Arlington just like kind of fit into that craziness. And then I had a baby and I came home and I went to work. Like we, the flight, we landed in Boston. We had the weekend. We were like, yay, the baby's here. And I was like, okay, it's Monday, time to go to work. And I put on an ergo and put the baby in her ergo and had a little rolly chair that I would like roll around to talk, like help kids while I was feeding Shaw. Um, and I had a baby at the studio. <laughs> That's just what I did. And you just made it work. I just did it. And Emily was in Arlington and I would go to Arlington and pack up Shaw. And um, it's just like just wild to think back at. 
And when you look back and even stuff during COVID, when we went through, it's like, how did we do that? You just do it. Yeah. You don't know. You just are in it and you just take messy action and yeah. throw the baby on and we're just going to make this work. And right. Talk about sink or swim for your sister. It was you empowered her. You're like, hey, here's ownership of all these two and yeah. good luck. I mean, that's like so crazy to her. I really, I probably should like ask her. And uh, say, like, how did that really feel? Like, you were just kind of, like, thrust, thrusted into this experience. Um, but she did it with so so much grace and positivity. And it solidified what was already very much in front of us that we were supposed to work together, for sure. That's awesome. What made you decide that maybe franchising was was in your next business step for you so guys? So after I opened Arlington, I was only in Arlington for two years. By the time Tan and our second son had come along, um, I decided that it was too much at that time to have the Arlington studio. So I closed it with the thought that I'm going to do this again. This isn't – I definitely want to grow Kid Casso, but right now I'm going to focus on these two little boys at home. Um, and a few years had gone by – and this is, I feel like, where it gets blurry because COVID kind of takes over a little bit during this. It's like yeah. mom life takes over mm -hmm. and then COVID kind of mushes in there. So I close Arlington. I've got the two babies at home. I've got Wakefield. I then open Andover. So this is five years ago. I open Andover. And while I'm opening Andover, I get a phone call from – a musician in Boston who I had done some kid programming with. And she said, I'm going to be at this farmer's market. I think you should come and be at this farmer's market. So I'm like, all right, let's pack up the car. I'll go to this farmer's market. I don't even know where the farmer's market was. It was like far away. And I was like, why am I doing this farmer's market? But I did it. And there were, there were some other businesses there. And the businesses that were there were like, oh, who's Kid Casso? And the um, businesses that were there were franchise owners of some other children's businesses in the area. And then basically a conversation started where they saw Kid Casso being sellable. And they were like, have you ever thought about franchising it? And, you know, there's definitely that little bit of like glitz and glamour and that for like being sweet talked by these, you know, business guys in Boston and, you know, it's a little bit of winding dining happening. And I'm just like some art kid with a learning disability. I'm like, what? I'm going to franchise a business now? How do you do that? So I just trusted them and I said to my husband, this is going to be a great idea. We're going to do this. Now we're going to franchise it. And poor Chris, he probably was like, what the hell are you doing? Um, and I knew I had a friend of ours from our adoption agency who was a franchise lawyer in Boston. And he was like, Laura Marie, I love you, but you can't afford me. Let me point you in the direction of somebody who works more with like smaller startup franchises. So I got connected with a lawyer in Stoneham, phenomenal. And I built a franchise and I took everything out of my brain and put it on paper. And I worked at Starbucks Every minute I could of the day that I wasn't teaching or wasn't with my children, I was at Starbucks. I think everybody knew me at Starbucks. And, you know, it was like I would sit down and my coffee would be sitting there waiting for me. Um, and I was running Andover. Um, and then all of a sudden I had a franchise in Newton. And it was like ready to rock and roll. But during the franchise days, something was always missing. And I felt, you know, I guess maybe some people on paper, they would say, oh, you were being controlling. You wanted to control it. And I think a lot of small business owners, yeah, we're control freaks, 100%. Um, but it was something more than that. There was something missing from what Kid Casa, what that brand and that roots was. It wasn't translating with this other owner. Um, so ultimately, I decided this relationship has to end. The franchise has to end. I'm going to take it back and clean it internally and fire everybody. And I rebuilt it and spent a ton of time in Newton trying to talk to the families that were paying for a product that I'm like, why are you paying for this? I wouldn't pay for this product. And this is my product. And that was eye-opening because I'm like, crap, like this didn't 
work, but why? And so I really started to pick things apart. And I decided right before the holidays of 2019 to close with the anticipation that I would be opening in 2020. And I found a space on California Ave in Newton. It was perfect. And I was like, oh, I'm going to sign this lease. But something kept pulling me back. And it was right around Christmas time. And all of a sudden, I start seeing like one person wearing a mask. And I was like, something's going on. And a lot of people thought I was crazy because I was the person in January that was like buying Amazon every day, buying toilet paper and paper towels and canned food. Um, I think Chris definitely thought I was a little crazy, but I was like, it's coming. Something's coming. So, and you were right. And I was right. <laughs> and something came. Something came. Right. Yeah. So, a lot to unpack there. So, how did you find that franchise owner? Was this somebody that approached you or were you advertising I'm selling a franchise? No. So, it was somebody who approached okay. me. And I think what was awesome about this particular business person and franchise owner is that they 100% know how to take a business that is turnkey. A McDonald's is turnkey. Kid Casso is not turnkey. It is so much blood and sweat. And I realized that an owner-operator model was where Kid Casso needs to be. So I really looked at this idea of what is a franchise and is there a new world that's starting to happen with more of a boutique-style franchise? Um, like the owner of the Kid Casso Newton, he could never pick up a paintbrush and go in there and fill in for somebody. That's a problem, um, especially in this type of work. It just didn't – you're dealing with kids and you're dealing with the personalities and the emotions and um, the ups and downs of children. And I had played so far into – my own struggles as a kid and how important it was to get a college education, then to go to grad school and get a graduate degree in education, to being certified and, you know, being a educational professional where this franchise owner was like, just hire a college kid to do it. They're cheap. I'm not going to pay somebody $75,000 a year to – I'll go out of business. And I was like, but you have to. You have to have me. And he didn't want to pay a me. He wanted to pay a college kid. And a college kid wasn't me. So it just it just crumbled. He couldn't retain the kids. I mean, it was a mess. You wouldn't even have known. I like real looking back at that, I'm like, oh, those families, like they didn't even really know what Kid Casa was, no matter how hard I tried on the outside. Um, internally, it was such a mess. Just an orc. That's such a hard decision for you to make, though, and probably cost a lot of money, and mm -hmm. probably was a lot of not fun conversations mm -hmm. to say. It was so uncomfortable. I don't even know how you start that conversation. It was so uncomfortable. You are feeling miserably, so I'm going to take this business from you, totally. basically. Totally to be like to somebody who's very successful and say like, "You're not good at this. Yeah. This, you're not me." Um, and I, you know, after. We had our business divorce. A good friend of mine took me out for a drink and we were like toasting at the bar. And there were a group of guys sitting next to us and they were like, divorce? Did you, you got divorced? I was like, just business divorce. <laughs> but sometimes it takes like burning it to the ground and then starting over. 100%. Then undoing everything that was wrong. Sometimes it's better. And it seems like that was the right decision for you. Totally. Not the easiest decision. Totally. Probably the hardest, but sometimes you need to burn it to the ground. And totally. And had to crumble real fast. Yeah. I mean, it was gross from all aspects of it. It was like needed to go. But now you know owner operates what you need. When you're going to sit down with people and make your LLC agreement, that's probably built in there. Like you mm -hmm. are working... Yeah. You are doing a majority of the services and stuff like that. Now you know. But at the beginning, exactly. you were like, this is going to be great. I want to open a franchise right. and like, it's going to be a millionaire. Yeah. I can't wait. This would be awesome. We're going to be so rich. Yeah. You know? So now you have Wakefield, Andover, and Newton, and you own them all now. Yeah. So I own them all. Um, I made the decision to close Newton, but left everything like push and play. Like we're going to, the new year, we're going to enjoy the holidays. The new year is going to come. And by summer, we will be back in action and it will be the Kid Casso that I know Newton deserves to have. Um, 
And then when I started to get those beginning like pains, those gut feelings as I was watching what was happening in the world, I just – there was like a gut feeling that pushed me not to go down a direction of signing that lease on California Ave. I probably drove that poor listing agent crazy because she was like, why won't this lady sign this lease? Um, But thank God I didn't because if I did, I think – I probably could have been hit in a really negative way um, with the beginnings of COVID of having another lease to have to worry about for sure. So then when did you reopen New Inn? So a year and a half ago. um, I knew that I wanted to open New Inn again and I was looking at spaces and a space on Washington Street in West New Inn came up on the market. And that particular area of Newton felt very um, full circle to me. I lived in Watertown. I was in that area dining and shopping on a daily basis. When I worked at Tiffany & Company in Chestnut Hill, that was the path I took to get to Chestnut Hill. So there was something about Washington Street that felt like home to me. I just was like, I'm meant to be here. Um, And I literally saw the place and signed within seconds of seeing the space. Um, And it was probably the first, my husband obviously is very supportive of me and of Kid Caso, but it was probably the first time in the 16 years of having Kid Caso that I really felt empowered to make a decision, knowing that I had gone through the challenges of COVID and came out on the other side, that I was like, I can make this decision and I don't need to consult anybody. I'm going to go with this. I don't need to talk to my husband about this right now. I'm going to just do it. I'm going to sign this lease. And that's what I did. That's great. So what advice would you give people that are maybe have one location and they're looking to grow? Like what were some of the things you wish you knew when you started to scale to two mm-hmm. to three that it's way different from just running one location? Definitely slow and steady wins the race. Um, I think being slow and strategic has been crucial to our growth at Kid Caso. I feel that making those early connections, even though I was started off as a home business, getting out in the community and showing face, you have to show face. You have to do the hard work. You can't pay for somebody else to go out there and run a street fair or have an open house for you or a free sample day. It has to be you. You are intrinsically tied to the community that your business is in. And the only buy-in, it's going to come from that community. If you want them to believe you and trust your brand, you have to be there. You could have the greatest team in the world, but it doesn't mean you're business is going to keep pushing forward to the next level. So carving that time out, if you are, I mean, having multiple locations without my sister Emily, without my head teacher Sally in Andover and my head teacher Christine in Newton, I wouldn't be able to do this. I mean, they're in all three of those locations right now, so I can be here today. Um, But it's constantly checking in and making mistakes, and some weeks look prettier than other weeks. Um, But planning, taking your time doing it, and finding out where your biggest allies are in your community is everything for a brick and mortar. Yeah, and it seems like the process was similar, right? Going from like location one, opening it now, you know how to do that Mm -hmm. successfully. You did it again in location two and then again in location three. What are some of the keys that you feel like where you're in a position now where you're able to be removed? Mm -hmm. How did you get from being so in it and being in the community, being the face of the business to where you are now? So definitely I would say that the very beginnings of Kid Casa, I started to write everything down. Going back to that Oprah episode, keeping a journal, starting to write down a mission statement, your core values, a business plan. I feel like a lot of businesses don't do that in the early stages. And then when the growth starts to present itself, it's harder to grow because you don't have that rooted model. Um, so a lot of my days right now, because I do have such a great team 
with me to focus on the day-to-days of the studio and the teaching and being with the children. It allows me to continually be changing our structure, our policies, our business model, and that's giving me more growth every day. Um, It would be hard to do that if I was teaching full-time right now. You know, the writing a business plan and working on your policies and procedures, we call our employee handbook a blueprint. I mean, I have to look at our blueprint on a weekly basis because it's always evolving and it's always changing. Um, And I think a business owner needs to be open for that. Even though you write something once, it's not going to stay that way. And if it does stay that way, you're not going to stay in business. So looking forward, are you looking for your next franchise owner operator or are you kind of putting a hold on that? What, is, what are your thoughts Definitely on the franchise? putting a hold on the franchising. I would like to see, you know, there were definitely some gems that happened for us during COVID with um, virtually teaching. It was something that we did really seamlessly and it worked really, really well for us. Um, I think that there's still a place for Kid Casso to be at a greater level virtually, to connect more to people. I think our Kid Casso to grow to go programs um, where we travel to schools and outside community centers, I think there's a huge revenue stream and place for us to grow within that. And there's some definitely money sides of looking at those, you know, a to-go program, I don't have to pay the overhead of rent. I mean, that's huge. Um, So being able to scale the business right now is a focus of mine for sure. That's so smart. And then how do you, so now you have three studios and three kids. What are some of your secrets to success to managing all these different moving parts at one time? I was listening the other day to a podcast and they were, they asked a similar question and they were talking about like well-being and health. And I, you know, I sit with you guys, you guys are health and well-being experts and gurus. Um, You know, there's something, we can't do everything. You can't have your cake and eat it too. I think there's a mentality coming out of the 90s and the early 2000s that taught women that they could do everything. I don't think that's possible. I think that you have to know and pick and choose what you want. And there are some things that sit on a back burner sometimes. Um, Something that is a 100% I will not not do every week is therapy. That's something that is just on the list every single week is being at a therapy appointment. Um, So I think once you find as a person, once you find what makes you tick, if you need to cook one meal a week, then that's what you got to do. I hate cooking. So that's going to go for me. I'm not going to cook. It's basically like, where should we order tonight? Um, In giving yourself permission for that, I think that's that like mom guilt um, that so many working moms face of, to me, when I go home at the end of the day and my kids, I get my kids to bed and everything's quiet and settled in my house, I like to light a nice smelling candle. I like to have the lights low. Those are like those simple little pleasures that are important to me. So I think if a business owner or working mom can figure out those like one, two, three little gems that are important to make them tick the other things will kind of fall into place. And teaching your kids too. I mean, my kids 100%, whether they love it or hate it, they have the Kid Casso mom. And that's probably not the most comfortable hat to wear in especially living in Wakefield and having my business in Wakefield and now having two, you know, almost teenagers. I see and I know everything. And everybody knows my kids, so they don't really – I mean, sometimes they get away with murder, but hopefully not really. <laughs> um, but, you know, having that like that balance with your children of like, yeah, this is important to me. Work it, work. This work is important to me. Um, and teaching your kids that. I don't think you can be everything for your kids either. Just like you can't be everything to your spouse. You can't be everything in your home. You know, some people are like, I can't clean my house. So get a cleaning person and be done with it. Take that off your plate. 
I love cleaning houses. I will clean your house any day. <laughs> I love cleaning. Yeah, and just giving yourself some grace. I think that's really important. And how awesome that you've shown your kids what hard work can accomplish. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Well, this was great. I feel like people are going to get so many good pieces out of this interview. We like to end all of our interviews with our fast five. So just five quick questions. Okay. So what's one non-negotiable thing you do every single day? Have coffee. (laughs) Coffee's a great one. Coffee's a must. What's one bucket list place you'd like to travel to? Tahiti. And what are three traits that you think every entrepreneur should have? Laughter, perseverance, and silliness. I love those. You have to just keep laughing, right? What's I guess the laughter and silliness are similar, but <laughs> what is the best or the worst piece of business advice you've ever been given? Oh, that's a really good one. Best is finding your hook and not being afraid to use your hook. Really big on hooks. Hooks sell. There's no denying it. They sell. I love that. That's like another podcast for another day. Oh, yeah. What's your hook? <laughs> and then if you could go back right when you were just had the idea for Kid Caso and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? To not compare myself to other businesses that are doing similar things. That's great. So why don't you tell everyone where they can find you, where they can find Kid Caso? So on Instagram at Kid Caso in Wakefield on Albion Street in West Newton on Washington Street and in Andover, currently at 27 Main, but we are getting ready to move to a new home in downtown Andover, which we should be releasing hopefully today. Oh, exciting. Yeah. Well, you guys know where to find us, businessmusclepodcast.com on Instagram at business, business Podcast. I'm Dr. Ariel.dpt on Instagram and Elise is Elise Kyra. We'll see you guys next week. You just finished another episode of the Business Muscle Podcast. If you found value in this episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Your reviews mean the world to us and help us reach other listeners who can make a big impact in the business world. Don't forget to join our Business Muscle Podcast Facebook group where you can ask questions and chat with other like-minded entrepreneurs. Stay tuned for our next episode where we'll bring you more expert advice and practical strategies to help you thrive. Thank you for being a part of the Business Muscle community, and we'll catch you in the next episode.